Good morning. Our scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 3. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word. Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of our Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer. Oh, our Father in heaven, who in great kindness and grace gave of your own beloved Son for us on our behalf, Now teach us Christ and grab our minds and our affections and give us to receive and rest on him alone for the first time or again. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How can we have confidence to stand in the presence of God? He is pure, he is clean, the Bible says he is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So how can we know that we in whom darkness dwells can stand right in his presence and acceptable? It's a question of the biblical teaching of justification. And Paul never tires of exploring that subject. Verse 1, he says... To write the same things to you is no trouble to me. And it's safe for you. So you can't hear this too often, Paul is saying. Now I realize that, uh, and I realized just this week as I was writing this sermon, that I believe you all have been hearing the book of Romans, which is, uh, which is, its central theme is justification. So uh, this morning you aren't done with that theme. 
Justification is a biblical word, not a theological word. And though the word does not appear, the central idea of it is in verse 9. This is the heart of the, the, the text in the sermon this morning. I want to be found in Christ, the Apostle Paul says, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You understand that that all other religions are about being saved, however salvation is conceived. About being saved by, by rendering to God, or the gods, righteousness. But Christianity is about being saved by receiving from God, righteousness. You either are justified or not, and you're either right with God or you're not. You've either been gifted righteousness or you are still trying to give to God Righteousness. This is why Martin Luther said justification is, justification is the article by which the church either stands or falls. The church is justified. And outside of the church, outside of the true church, there is no justification. So how can you and I be justified and have confidence before God? Well, let me ask you this question. When you ask yourself, what are my spiritual problems? What hinders my spiritual life? What do you think about? Do you think, well, uh, my language isn't good. Um, I, I kind of have some friends who aren't uh, the best. Uh, maybe you say to yourself, well, I let my Bible go unread and I feel awful about that. I think it's been months. Or, or maybe you say to yourself, I, I simply fail to pray. Pray as often, pray as much, pray with the kind of quality that I should. Or maybe some of you think, well, the, the big problem is some big sin. But what if it's the case in your life that your biggest spiritual problem is the thing you like most about you? What if your biggest problem in God's eyes is what you think is what commends you most? To him. I have a friend who, in teaching me this passage a half a decade ago, referenced David Brooks. He's an op-ed writer, famous uh, columnist, wrote a book called Bobos in Paradise, in which he says, up until recent history, there were two camps in America. There were the Bohemians and the establishment. There, there, were, there were the countercultural folks, the artistic folks, and then there were the, the haves, the, the rich people, the establishment. So you had hippies and you had fat cat business people with big cigars. And these groups, he says, have now merged and become one group of people. Your example of that is Steve Jobs, Apple. His corporate presentations are done in jeans. Uh, decades ago, that would have been unthinkable. The other example David Brooks gives is that the people who used to drive Cadillacs hated Led Zeppelin, and now Led Zeppelin is how you reach people to buy Cadillacs. How did this happen, he asks. He says it was the university system. Up until a few decades ago, the way you got into top American universities was aristocracy. Your family had connections. Your grandfather had graduated, uh, or you had, you had money. Somehow your name had weight. 
And you could probably go to any school you wanted to. And if you didn't have those things, well, then the planets had to align or you didn't get in. But now the people who get in are not the aristocracy. They're the meritocracy. What does Brooks mean? Well, you used to get into Harvard because your dad was a massive Wall Street magnet. But now you get into Harvard by getting a 1600 on the SAT, working briefly in Nepal, doing volunteer work, making indigenous products, which you import back to the United States, and you donate all the proceeds to a battered woman's shelter. And if you have that on your resume, then you can get in. Merit. Stellar achievement. Now why go into all that? Because both those things play into this text as Paul speaks of his unjustified confidence in aristocracy or meritocracy. And I want to walk you through that and think about your life. And then Paul says, but there is a justified confidence in verses 7 through 9. And then Paul, over the course of the passage, shows you how, how this might bear fruit. In other words, we're going to ask the question of, well, what are the marks of a justified confidence? Those three issues in the first place, verses 4 through 9. An unjustified confidence before the face of God. He actually begins in verse 2 when he launches into this uh, group of people he clearly does not like, whom he calls dogs and evildoers. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a group... Um, theologians called Judaizers. These were, these were people who followed the Apostle Paul and other apostles and ended up where they had just preached and said things like, what the apostles just told you is true. You need to believe in the Messiah. And you also need to do this. Get circumcised. Obey some obscure Old Testament law. In other words... Uh, it's not enough simply to have Jesus. And Paul goes ballistic against these folks, calling them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh, referring to their uh, circumcision practices and putting confidence in it. Do the math, friends. He's, he's calling them as mutilators. These people said there are two kinds of people in in Christianity, those who believe, and those who believe and get it right, do it well. And Paul says, you know, if we're going to have a contest about getting it right, a contest of credentials, that's a contest I can win. Let, let me bring before you my credentials. Uh, let me show you what confidence I have, but I put no confidence in it. And so let me walk you through Paul's confidence. And have you considered, because he's speaking as a, a Jewish Christian raised in Judaism, and I'm speaking to mainly, I assume, a Gentile audience raised as Christians, perhaps. So examine these things. Paul, beginning at verse 5, says, you know, I can have confidence before God because I was circumcised on the eighth day. And his point is, I'm native born and my parents did it right. We didn't come to this thing late. I was birthed into the community and my parents were careful to do the sacrament well. The eighth day was commanded. And you might say to yourself, and I was baptized. 
even in infancy, because my parents got it right. Then Paul says, well, and I'm also of the people of Israel. In other words, by birth, I've been in this thing from day one. And you're saying I've always been part of the church. Of course, I'm right with God. And he says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. That's the line of the first king of Israel. You see what Paul is saying? You know, I'm from a pretty important family in Israel. We kind of matter in the history of this place. And maybe you are saying to yourself, I'm, I'm the son or daughter of a missionary. I'm the son or daughter of an elder, a, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher. And, and that matters to God. Or, Paul says, in addition, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Though my family lived in Tarsus, which is not in Israel, we did things the way that you do them. We kept the language. We kept the culture. My parents had me study, the Apostle Paul would say, under one of the most famous rabbis of his day. I studied with the best of the best. And you say, and I've gone to Christian schools my whole life and been taught the Bible week in and week out. And then Paul says, well, that's, that's my ancestry. That's what others did for me and made me do. But, but let me tell you about how I've lived, what I have chosen to be. As to the law, he says three things. I'm a Pharisee. Uh, now, we think Pharisees are the evil guys, but to their peers, they were the people who hung the moon. Uh, they were the people everybody thought they get it. They do it well. They're conservative, Bible-believing, inerrantists, inspirationists. They love the scripture and they really try to live it. So a Pharisee in their day would, would cut rosemary for his son, well, Sabbath. I'm going to get confused on that one just a second. Would cut rosemary to add to the pot of stew. And strip a tenth, set it aside to tithe to the church. This is what a Pharisee would do. And Paul's saying, yeah, I live like that. I did that really well. And more than that, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I thought Christians were guilty of blasphemy and deserved to die. And I pursued them into prison, torture, and I stood by while they were killed because I'm zealous for God. Now you may say, well, I haven't in my zeal tried to destroy the church. In my zeal, I've worked really hard to build the church. I don't think there's anybody around here who's done more than me, given more time than me, uh, tithed more money than me to build the church. I'm zealous, you say. And then the Apostle Paul closes with this. And, and as to the law, blameless. Now Paul isn't saying he was entirely sinless, but he is saying that externally from the outside, when you looked at him, you said, you know, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's a good person. He gets it right. There is no scandalous sin in that man's life. And you're saying that about you. And the Apostle Paul, what does he think of all that? He says in verse 7, whatever gains I had, and the word is plural 
in the Greek. Not just gain. Gains. He's itemized. He's filled his accountancy column with everything he can matter, think of that he thinks matters. Whatever gains I had, he says, I consider them a loss. They're no profit. They've placed me in debt. So what if the things that you like most about yourself are the very things that keep you from being justified and right with God? Your self-disciplined devotions, dear sweet believer, your reading of sound, reformed theology, your efforts at being moral, at least more moral than your neighbor. Are these the things in which you place your confidence? If you do, you're, if not already, you're destined for misery. Absolute misery. In this life and the next. It makes you and others miserable. Why? As many have said it, it leads to pride. When you think you're doing well. And you begin to look down on others who aren't keeping up with you. Or it leads to despair. When you realize you're not doing well. And, and there's in your conscience the thought, God therefore is against me. Either way, it leads to people chucking the faith. When you aren't doing well, you begin to despair. And you begin to think, God doesn't accept me. I can't stand being in a relationship with a God who can't stand me. I can't stand him. I'm out of here. Or, when you're doing well in your own eyes, it leads you to burnout because you're trying to keep God liking you. And eventually you will wear out on that. You can't keep up. His holiness is relentless. So you'll say, I'm out of here. I can't do this thing for God anymore. And the truth you need to remember, friends, is that you never live up to even your own expectations. Your, trouble, your conscience troubles you, does it not? You fail your own standards, let alone God's, and if your right standing with God depends on you living up to your standards or God's standards, you're going to kill your spiritual life. You're going to make others miserable. You're going to live like you're constantly on trial. Like the verdict is still out and the jury hasn't come back, but at any moment there could be really bad news for you. He loves me. He loves me now. He accepts me. He accepts me now. That is a place of great misery, friends. What you need to see is this, that God is not a capitalist. He is not paid, paying wages for achievers. God is a philanthropist, gifting donations to the destitute through his son Jesus, who was devout, who had his quiet time, who loved his God, who was moral, 
who believed reformed theology, who was obedient to God in all things, and he did it for you and in your place so that you in him could be as righteous as he before the face of God. It's a missionary named David Brainerd. Uh, He wrote in his diary uh, something that I think from his own experience is instructive for us. He says, when I was about 20 years of age, I was engaged more than ever in the duties of religion. I became strict and watchful over my thoughts and words and actions. I spent much time every day reading my Bible, praying. I gave great attention to Sunday sermons in short I had a very good outside and trusted entirely in my religious duties, though I was not then aware of what I was doing wrong. Now, here's the problem. The more I tried to love God with all my soul, the more I saw how little I loved God. And I saw that all my prayers and repentances and feelings and obedience had not laid the least obligation upon God to bestow his salvation upon me. Then I realized why they were of no avail. When I had been fasting and praying and obeying, I thought I was aiming at the glory of God, but I was doing it all for my own glory, to feel I was worthy. I was doing nothing for God, all for me. It was an exercise in self-worship. I was actually trying to avoid God as Savior and be my own Savior. Then, he says, it was at that time that the true way of salvation opened to my mind. Salvation not by my own contrivances, but entirely by the righteousness of Christ. And then I felt myself in a new world. Then joy came. Paul rejects confidence in his flesh, though he might have reason before you and I to boast. No reason before God. And instead he speaks of a justified confidence in verses 7 through 9. He says, verse 7, I count all things as lost ground, verse 8. I count everything as lost. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, the Greek is stronger than that. It's at least as strong as I think it's the King James way of translating it, dung. And that's earthy. And I want to be more earthy because I believe that this is the way you and I would hear it. This is the way it would sound to our ears. I count these things as crap, the Apostle Paul says. I broke my back keeping the law. I had all the right lineage, but it's total crap before God. What do you think you need to repent of, friends, when you think of that word repentance? What are your biggies? Your language? Your temper? Is it laziness? Is it porn? Is it drunkenness? What are your big, hairy sins that you think you need to repent of? Could it be That the thing you need to repent of most is the thing you like about yourself the most. It could be your aristocracy. My parents got it right. I was raised in the church. I belong here. 
but it's probably your meritocracy. And you'll know it when you discover in your heart saying this to yourself. You know, when I let others down, or I let myself down, you know what I do? I internally say to myself, you know I'm not all that bad. I could be blank. What's that blank? How do you fill in that blank? You know, at least I'm nice. My friends lose their tempers all the time, but I don't. Or you know when we sing in church? I really try to pay attention to the words. And there are people around here who are just on autopilot every Sunday. But, but I'm, I'm paying attention. Or, you know, at least I'm in shape. Seriously, there are people around here who have not cared for their bodies. But I do. I do. I, my body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. I've gotten that right. Or, you know, at least I don't cuss much. <laughs> Brian Habig, a, a pastor and a friend, says this. He, he reminds us, there is a verse of the Bible repeatedly quoted from the Old Testament and again in the New that says, God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. And to be proud, you understand, is not to walk around saying, I am the man. I am amazing. There are very few people who do that. Unless you work for the WWF. <laughs> to be proud in the Bible is this. When you are rattled about letting others down or God down, you figure out how to fix it and make it right. With your own inherent goodness. That, biblically, is pride. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Paul says, I put no confidence in the flesh. Verse 9, I need grace. I want to be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ because he's righteous. So Paul says, I take all my good works and I pile them in a mound Heaping, steaming dung, and I flee from them to Christ, that I may be right with God through his righteousness. Paul learned long ago what Isaiah had said. We all have become like one who is unclean, and all our righteousness is like a filthy rag. He uses the word for a woman's dirty menstrual cloth. And we... In our arrogant but unjustified confidence, hold our good works to the nose of God and say, look at us. And he sees a filthy rag. You must see, as George Whitfield says, that God may damn you for the best prayer that you could ever pray. Now that's because, as Whitfield put it, I cannot pray without sin. I cannot preach without sin. I can do nothing without sin. As one person put it, my repentance needs to be repented of. And my tears of repentance need to be washed in the precious blood of my dear Redeemer. My best duties are so many splendid sins. You can know you are at peace with God. 
When you have been made sick, not only of your sins, but of your self-righteousness, has that come home to your heart yet? I know a man intimately well. And this first came home to him when he was 18 years old. His life was spiraling out of control with explosions of rage, with uh, an increase of lust and expressing it immorally. He was descending as he felt himself into the spiral downward into the depths of filth. But none of those sins brought him home to Jesus until one night a neighbor girl came home late at night and through his window and under the lamplight he saw her and he looked at her and he imagined in his own mind the sins that she must be committing because he knew exactly what kind of girl she was. And he had a flash in his heart. You are just like her. She's you. Who are you to look down your nose at her all your life? That's you. And that's when he broke. That's when he cried out, Jesus, have mercy on me. Because it was not until that moment when not just his sin, but his self-righteousness was exposed. It was not until that moment that he could come to Jesus. How about you? How has God in his grace humbled you? Do you have a justified confidence By leaning on Jesus alone to be right with God. How might you know if you do? Three things from this passage. The Apostle Paul, just to highlight three. How would you know if this is bearing fruit in your life? There would be evidence. Number one, let me say from verse three. You would, as the Apostle Paul says, glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to imagine it's the Arkansas-Alabama game. A few weeks away yet, let's assume we've won two more. We're at Bama. It's been a terribly discouraging game. All defense, we're scoreless. We're down three, two seconds on the clock, pinned at the one-yard line. We've got 99 yards to go in one play. And, and the Bama crowd outnumbers us 10 to 1. You can't hear yourself think. Things look absolutely hopeless. We haven't done anything on offense all day long. We put five wideouts in the game, but Bama is blitzing, hoping to end it quickly. The Arkansas offensive line can't hear Tyler Wilson's as he calls an audible on the snap count. And he takes the snap. He drops back. He looks downfield. He pump fakes. And then he rolls right in a quarterback keeper. You can hear Petrino screaming in Fayetteville. (laughs) But Wilson beats the defensive line to the corner. And he goes upfield and he literally leaps a linebacker. And at the 10-yard line, he runs straight into a linebacker and knocks him flat on his back. And at the 40, he stiffs arm one safety into the other safety and he beats everybody in the end zone. Game over. Victory, we win. Now you start screaming. We won. We won. We beat Bama. Tears of joy stream down your cheeks. Except for a few of you. (laughs) 
And on the way home, you replay that final play in your mind over and over again. It's all you can talk about with your friends. Tyler Wilson, two seconds to go, calls an audible and runs it for a touchdown. That week you buy the t-shirt, Tyler Wilson is my hero. And you wear it every day for the rest of the season. Do you understand what you were doing? You are glorying in Tyler Wilson. Boasting in him. And enjoying the victory. Siphoning off, as it were, the benefits of his achievement for you. What he secured, you watched. What he accomplished, he accomplished while you sat in the stands. You were passive. You enjoy its outcome. You boast in him. And the Apostle Paul says, I glory. I glory in Christ Jesus. He lived my life. He died my death. I can quit trying to prove myself. I can't beat what he did anyway. And what he did is good enough for God. And I am in him. And that's all that matters. You glory in Christ Jesus. The second thing you do, if this is bearing fruit in your life, you watch out, the Apostle Paul says. You watch out for those who would twist the gospel. You want that story told straight. You want nothing to do with a false gospel that says, you know, the right way to be uh, right with God is by believing in Jesus plus getting baptized, praying at dawn, or keeping the Sabbath. You want nothing to do with a false gospel that says the right way to be right with God is by believing in Jesus plus not eating pork, not drinking alcohol, or eating no added sugar. You want nothing to do with a false gospel that says the right way to be right with God is by believing in Jesus plus wearing dresses, putting your hair in a bun, or dressing up or down for church. You reject the false gospel that you can be right with God by believing in Jesus plus memorizing the Bible, learning the catechism, or liking podcasts of R.C. Sproul. You reject the false gospel that the way to be right with God is by believing in Jesus plus abstaining from marital sexual intimacy or submitting to your husband or parenting God's way or obeying your parents. You reject as false that you can be right with God by believing in Jesus plus homeschooling, public schooling, Or private Christian schooling. Just get Jesus in that right. And you and God are good. You reject. You reject a false gospel. That by believing in Jesus. Plus never getting angry. Or never lusting. Or getting debt free. Or keeping all your promises. Because all the other men said they would be promise keepers too. Then you're right with God. You reject. You want nothing to do with a false gospel that says the way to be right with God is to believe in Jesus and to get it right. 
You love. You've begun to taste and see it's good. That God made Jesus who who knew no sin to be sin for you so that in him you could become the righteousness of God. That Jesus died, the just for the unjust, to bring you to God. And that you have been justified through faith in Christ and have peace with God. And you stand in grace with God through Jesus alone. Jesus plus nothing. That's the second way. You're you're against and you're watchful of those who don't shoot straight about the good news. And thirdly and finally, you know you're bearing the marks of believing the good news and being justified when you desire to know Jesus more. Having been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you're thankful. You begin to love Christ. And you know that the gospel didn't just get you forgiveness. It didn't just get you heaven. It got you God and God for you. The Apostle Paul says, I want to know Christ. Like in a good marriage. Like in a good marriage where you have begun to see love blossom. So your desire to know and be known blossoms too. May the Lord write this on our hearts. Let's pray. Jesus, we bless you and thank you. Be a savior to us. In all our arrogant pride and wickedness. In Jesus' name, amen.